Hi, my name is Maddie. The Old Testament reading is found in Leviticus 16, verses 6 through 10. Aaron will present the bull for his sin offering and make atonement for himself and his household. Next, he will take the two goats and place them before the Lord at the entrance to the tent of meeting. After Aaron casts lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for an uninhabitable place, he is to present the goat chosen by the lot for the Lord and sacrifice it as a sin offering. But the goat chosen by lot for an uninhabitable place is to be presented alive before the Lord, to make atonement with it by sending it into the wilderness for an uninhabitable place. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Colleen. The New Testament reading is found in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 14. But Christ has appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come. In the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered the most holy place once for all time, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a young cow, sprinkling those who are defiled, sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse our consciences from dead works so that we can serve the living God. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is James, and thank you for standing for the gospel reading found in John chapter 2, verses 18 to 22. So the Jews replied to him, what sign will you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it up again in three days. Therefore the Jews said, This temple took 46 years to build, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the testament Jesus had made, the gospel of the Lord. Remain standing as we pray. So, Father, we ask that by your Holy Spirit, you would quicken our hearts this morning, that we'd have eyes to see and ears to hear and minds to understand, hearts to believe, but, God, that above all, it wouldn't just be words and ideas, but you would communicate your very breath, your very life into us, we pray, into our spirits. In Christ's name we pray. And everybody said, amen. amen. You may be seated. Well, as Pastor Evan was saying earlier this morning, this is the second Sunday of Advent, and, uh, and so very often the theme associated with this week is peace. Uh, we're in a three-week series here on Jesus as the coming God, and so last week we looked at what it means to see Jesus as the coming prophet. You see, in uh, the Old Testament, the, the very first people of God prophet, priest, and king were kind of the three main offices, if you will, uh, in their nation. And each one of those offices fell apart, came uh, apart at the seams. And so there was this sense in which they were saying, God, would you just come and do this role yourself? And so this morning we want to look at what it means to say Jesus is the coming priest. And why is that actually good news? In fact, why do we even need a priest? A couple years ago when we were on vacation, um, our son Jonas, who's sitting up here in the front, he's eight years old today, but this was when he was six, and, uh, 
And we were, we were on an extended trip, a road trip, and, and you know how those things can get. I mean, we have four kids, and so he has three sisters. And so, you know, once in a while in these crowded quarters, hotel rooms and all this stuff, there's a little bit of tussling and egging one another on and doing stuff. You know, so, so we're having these conversations. Hey, everybody, let's try to be calm. Let's be nice. Let's do this. Let's not add to the stress, you know. And we're getting all more stressed out as it is, you know. And, uh, and over the course of that, that vacation, Jonas w- began to say to me sometimes at bedtime, he'd say, Dad, I just feel like I have this dark heart. Like, my heart is just dark. And, then, and I thought, oh, no, buddy, no, you're fine. You're okay. Like, he goes, no, I mean, I just do these things. I know I shouldn't do them. I don't know why I do them. And so we're talking about it. I'm trying to help him not feel so bad. And then toward the end of that trip, we were camping and he couldn't sleep one night, which is pretty normal when we go camping because it's too cold and we just, we, we like beds and homes and heat and all of that stuff. But so he's having a hard time sleeping and, and uh, we're talking a little more about this and he says, I just think inside I have this darkness. And he was, I realized in that moment, he wasn't just describing feeling bad, he was describing guilt and he was describing sin, and we actually ended up having this great conversation about where that comes from and what to do with that. But I, I learned firsthand as a parent that children develop on their own a sense of, of guilt. And we want to say sometimes in our modern world that, oh, you know, this is just, uh, it, it's programmed into them. This isn't innate. This isn't just how humans are. But I discovered this week this archaeological evidence of the earliest human temple. Look at this. This is the earliest uh, ruins of civilization. This is Gobleki, Gobekli Tepe in modern-day Turkey. It was discovered some time ago. But archaeologists think that these ruins, this is from a civilization that is over 11,000 years ago. This is a site that is 7,000 years older than the pyramids. I put the link to the National Geographic article on my Facebook page. You can click on it now or later. But it's the first structure that human beings built that was larger than a hut. And so archaeologists and anthropologists, as they're studying this, they're saying, look, this was a time when the whole human race was a bunch of nomad. They lived in nomadic bands, you know, traveling little groups, scavenging vegetables and plants and hunting animals. But all of a sudden, one group decided, we're going to build something a little more permanent. And then within these ruins, they actually discovered a temple. That means from the earliest records of human civilization, not only did they build some sort of permanent residence, they built a temple. Isn't that amazing? And so this isn't Western brainwashing from Christianity. There's something in the human condition that knows there is a God and we are afar off from Him. Something is amiss in this relationship. And so I'd like to suggest that actually from the earliest civilizations, there was a sense that the gods were angry and that humans were guilty. A sense that the gods are out there and they're angry with us and we've done something, we're guilty. I think about growing up in Malaysia where some of the oldest religions in the world are Hinduism and Buddhism. And you think about the way that I think of friends having to participate in certain rituals of purification, rituals of appeasement to the gods. Some sense that the gods are angry and humans are guilty. And so priests arose because priests were needed to provide access and atonement. Now, this is an oversimplification. I know that. But just for the, as a way into our topic this morning, 
Priests kind of arose in the story of human history and human civilizations because access to God was needed and some kind of atonement. When you look at ancient priestly systems, there were three basic elements, three basic elements of priestly systems. There, was always temp- there were always temples, sacrifices, and priests. There's more to it than that, depending on the different religions, but these are the three basic elements. And in fact, when you read the early part of the Bible, the Old Testament, these same systems are there. Many Old Testament scholars believe that when, uh, when, when Israel began their priestly system, they weren't working from scratch. They weren't actually starting from a blank page. They were innovating based off of existing systems. But it's very interesting to note that actually, and this is an Old Testament scholar named Bill Arnold uh, who teaches at Asbury Seminary. He wrote this amazing article saying there's actually a few specific ways that the Old Testament priestly system was different than than the pagan systems. Would you like to know in what ways they were different? Yes. Well, I'm very glad you said that because I'm going to tell you. What's different about the priestly system in the Old Testament? Well, there's a number, and I'm not naming all of them. I'm just naming two for us today. One, with the temple, there was only one temple because one te- well, there was only one dwelling place for the one God. Now, this was a time in the world where everybody believed that there was a whole host of gods and, and the divine being sort of contracted out different parts of the world. So if you needed safe passage on the sea, go and pray to the sea God. If you needed your crops to grow, grow, go and pray to the crops God. If you needed to be able to have children, go and pray and do stuff for the fertility God. And all, but when, when Abraham comes onto the scene and God speaks to him, he begins to recognize that there is one sovereign God. One God above the gods. In fact, some of the language of the Old Testament, it shifts. It initially starts by saying, he is the God over all gods. And then there's other places later where it starts to say, he's the only God. And all others are false. But you kind of get the sense that the picture is slowly coming into focus. And the first thing they, they begin to realize is, okay, maybe there are these little other deities. But actually, there's only one who's the sovereign over all creation. Only one who's the king over all creation. And there's one temple, one dwelling place for the one God. Secondly, they had a sacrificial system that was very much like other systems, except for two notable things. One, there's no human sacrifice. Now, for whatever else we believe about the story of Abraham and Isaac, it cannot be missed that the most powerful point of that story is that the God who called to Abraham does not require human sacrifice. When we read the story, we're offended by it. We're like, oh my God, I can't believe he asked him to sacrifice. No, you're missing the point. If you put yourself in that world thousands of years ago, every God required human sacrifice. Just about. Many, many, many gods. And so God says, Abraham, the legend is your father It was this uh, idol worshiper, And so God says, I'm going to use a language of devotion that you understand. You understand the language of devotion of offering up your child. So Abraham, I'm going to ask for that as a way of seeing if you really are devoted all the way. And Abraham says, yes, I'm devoted all the way. And God says, thank you for your devotion. Now I'd like to offer you some revelation. Some revelation about who I am. And he says, I'm the God that doesn't require the sacrifice of humans. I'm the God that provides the sacrifice. 
And so Abraham finds the ram and he names God, the God who provides. This is significant. See, if you read that story with 21st century American lenses, you're offended by all kinds of things. But if you read it against the backdrop of pagan worship in its day, you're like, a God that doesn't require human sacrifice? Who is this God? Right? And then, a second thing about the sacrificial system, Israel actually had specific sacrifices for the removal of guilt. This is actually new, and this is one of the things Bill Arnold says in his article, is he says, we have yet to find a parallel in pagan religions for sacrifices that deal with guilt. Isn't that interesting? They had sacrifices for thanksgiving, for petitioning, for all of this stuff, but they, there's no pagan parallel for a sacrifice to deal with guilt. This is amazing. So what is this, what do we learn from this? How does the picture come into focus a little bit more, a couple clicks more. Number one, I would say that we learn that God is not fundamentally an angry God. God is not fundamentally an angry God. Do you know how revolutionary it is, or it must have been, when Moses, a couple generations after Abraham, he says, God, would you give me a glimpse of who you are? Would you give me a glimpse of your glory? And God says, okay, I'll pass behind, I'll pass before you just from, from behind, kind of a glimpse, a little bit of a sliver. And what does Moses say in that moment in, in the book of Exodus where it's recorded? He says, the Lord proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, abounding in compassion. The Lord, the Lord, slow to anger, full of mercy. Do you realize how revolutionary that was? When against this backdrop, there's all these pagan gods who the people believe are bloodthirsty and angry and require human sacrifice. They're vindictive. They're petty. You see, this is where Dawkins was wrong. He says, oh, the God of the Old Testament is vindictive and petty. Are you kidding? Look at the pagan gods. And against that backdrop, when the picture comes into focus, a couple clicks more, you realize this God is the Lord, the Lord, full of compassion, slow to anger abounding in mercy. Secondly, what we see is that guilt is not the final word. Guilt is not the final word. Now, we heard our Old Testament reading this morning is taken out of Leviticus 16. I'm not sure how many of you, even the most devoted Bible readers of you, have read through the entire book of Leviticus, right? But Leviticus 16 tells the story of the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, as it's called by Jews today. And it's this holy day where the high priest comes and he makes atonement for himself and he sacrifices this bull, cleanses himself, and then he takes two goats and one goat he sacrifices as a burnt offering. He'll take the blood of that bull and the, of that goat and the bull into the holy of holies in a moment. But before he goes to do that, he takes this other goat, puts his hand on it, hands on it, and says, "On you be all the sins of Israel." And he sends that goat out into the wilderness literally the first scapegoat, right? It's true. I mean, absolutely. And the idea that if you're missing the symbolism of it, this is what both of those things symbolize. Anytime wrong has been done, stay with me for a moment. Anytime wrong has been done, there's a penalty issue and there's a blame issue. Someone might pay the penalty, but who shall remove the blame? You might pay the penalty for doing something wrong, but it will never go away that you did that. Except this system of atonement deals with that. This system of atonement says God will not just deal with the penalty, He will expiate the blame. 
Do you see how powerful that is? He will expiate the blame. He will remove the blame. Now, you're listening to all of this and you're saying, okay, Glenn, I mean, that's kind of cool, but, but it's all just so barbaric and primitive. I mean, this is so foreign from our world. Like, this is awful. Like, why do we even have to talk about all of this? You see, in our day, words like anger and guilt and shame have very much fallen out of fashion. They've fallen out of use. We don't like it. Oh, we should never get it. There's never anything that justifies anger. Oh, we, let's not talk about guilt. Who's really guilty? Let's not talk about shame. And so an angry God, we're like, oh, that's just a social construct to control people. It's a myth. And I understand why people say that, because it has been true that religion has been used to control people. So I understand why people say that. At the same time, what sociologists and psychologists have taught us about anger is that anger is the proper and natural response when a good has been obstructed. When a good has been obstructed. And so when you feel something rising up in you when you deal with traffic on Woodman Road, it's because the good of your next appointment is being obstructed by this construction, right? right? But on a very real level, when you feel anger, it's because you understand some sense of justice and goodness is being obstructed here. And so, you may be wrong about what's good or just, but that's what your anger is telling you. You perceive an obstruction to goodness and justice. Can I tell you that the fact that God gets angry at sin though he is not fundamentally an angry God. But the fact that he gets angry at sin means that he actually loves this world. And he actually believes in the goodness of what he made. And so when he sees sin and violence and devastation wreaking havoc in his world, the anger that God feels is an anger that says, "Mm, the good that I had in mind for this world is being blocked. It's being derailed. It's being thwarted. So we can't just gloss over the idea of God's anger and say, oh, silly, primitive, barbaric. We don't believe in that. There's no angry God. God's just like Santa. (laughs) What about the concept of guilt? We like to gloss the concept of guilt and just say, well, there's no such thing as guilt. It's just your truth and my truth. And I may not like your truth, but I can't say you're actually wrong. You notice nowadays that nobody's wrong. And then the word shame is an interesting one. Shame of all of these three words, shame has probably fallen the most out of fashion. I grew up (laughs) in a culture that is very much honor and shame, and I, I had teachers that would say to me if I did something wrong, you should be ashamed of yourself. And they meant it. Now, if you said that, you'd be like, oh, please, don't, do, how dare, never, never let anybody feel shame. Now, let me say something clarifying. I understand that there are abuses of shame, where we make people feel shame that is not connected to any sense of wrongdoing, where you make people feel shame for something that they didn't do. And sometimes people who are actually the victims are made to experience the shame 
of the one who did the crime or did the wrong. That's, that's not right. So we are right to try to remove unhealthy shame, shame that does not actually correspond to any sense of wrongdoing. Brene Brown has written a lot about this, and, and, and sometimes Brene has said things like, guilt is I've done something wrong, shame is I am something wrong. I appreciate what Brene is up to in that. I think what she's trying to do is to help us not experience disproportionate shame or to make a mistake and then say, I am a mistake. I understand that. And I think there's something helpful about that. But I also want us to be careful that we don't try to fully separate guilt and shame because actually shame is the result of guilt. And there is a healthy kind of shame that results from actual wrongdoing. And you can't erase that with your words. You can't Oprah Winfrey your way out of that shame. You can't just be like, no, you're a beautiful person. You're amazing. You have, there's nothing you've done wrong. Don't ever feel shame. I was reading this week a sociologist named Randall Collins, and I read some of his work for my own research, and Collins writes a lot about interaction rituals, rituals that bind people together, that create social bonds. And Collins says, shame is actually the result of a breakdown in solidarity. A breakdown in solidarity. The broken, a broken social attunement. So if you go into the store today after church and you fill your, your basket up with groceries, but you decide you're going to break with convention. You're just not going to pay. And you're going to walk to your car with that cart and just put all those things in your bag because today's not a day for payment. And your truth says that if you're hungry, there should be food available. I don't want to live in a country where you have to pay for food. Okay. Even though our social solidarity says we'll provide you food, if you'll provide us with the money for it, right? That's our social contract. So, no, 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 I don't like that contract. I think that's lousy. I'm going to break with the solidarity of my society, and I'm going to take this stuff. And then someone says, hang on, hang on, excuse me, you can't leave. Hello, please, somebody stop that person. And you turn around and you say, how dare you shame me for walking out of the store with these groceries? It may not be your truth. But in my truth, I don't have to pay. Don't, I'm not going to let you shame me. These are my groceries, and I deserve it. I'm worth it, because I am beautiful. <laughs> this is absurd. He's like, no, you can't do that. You can't erase shame, the kind of shame that results from a breakdown in solidarity. Do you follow this? There is a healthy, of course there's unhealthy shame, but there's a healthy shame which says, you've just broken solidarity from the group. You've just disrupted attunement, the, the harmony of a group. And you can't be let off the hook. In fact, Collins goes on to say that the only way to remove shame is to allow the violator to face the anger of the violated. And he says, he says, actually, many groups are trying this. It's restorative justice where you don't just take the criminal and say, oh, you were wrong. Okay, we'll lock you up far away and you can never face the person you've wronged because that doesn't help the person deal with their sense of shame. 
And so they said, actually, what has to happen is they have to face the person that they have wronged. They have to name their wrongs. They have to feel the anger that is appropriate anger toward that wrong and to say, I'm sorry. And only then does that person get reintegrated into the group. Now, I haven't opened the Bible yet. We're 20 minutes into this. I haven't opened the Bible yet. Why am I saying this, taking so long to say this? Because we are convinced that guilt and shame are lies that religion made up. And I'm trying to tell you, this is how human beings work. Don't believe me? Why are all the headlines today about violators that did things years ago, but it feels so wrong to us today? Rightly so, by the way. You know why? Because those violators never faced the people they violated. They never faced the women. They never faced those children. They never felt the wrath, the anger of saying, you know what you did to my life. They never felt the shame that corresponds to the impact of their actions. And they want to pretend that because time has passed, it's all good. That was 30 years ago. And something in our bones says, it doesn't matter. You can't reintegrate into the group when you haven't faced the anger of the violated. We know this as human beings. This, we, don't, we haven't even opened scriptures to tell us these things. We know these things. That's how society works. And I'll tell you, just as Christians, it's one thing to say, well, God forgives me. It's another thing to face the person that you broke solidarity with, and to say, I was wrong. Your anger is right. The shame, the embarrassment, that's right. And you see, the gospel, by the way, never lets us off the hook of one or the other. Sometimes an easy believism of Christians want to say, well, I got the vertical down, I'm I'm good, God forgave me. But you notice all throughout Scripture, even in the, in the Gospels, what, is, what does Zacchaeus do when he repents before Jesus? He goes and repays. Go and make it right. Go and face the people you violated and make it right. So you can't gloss these things. But we have a problem because if that's the temptation of Christians, easy believism, take the vertical and not the horizontal, what's the temptation of our world and our culture? Do the horizontal but don't deal with the vertical. To say, well, I just violated them and, that, and I've already made right and I already said sorry. What, what else do I need to do? Well, you violated God. This is why David in Psalm 51, the prayer that he prays after he used his power to exploit a woman, murder her husband, One of the most horrific abuses of power, David says in Psalm 51, against you, Lord, have I sinned. Because David understands sin isn't just horizontal, sin is also vertical. And guilt is not just a problem with how we haven't loved our neighbors well. Guilt is a problem because we violated God. So my question is, if the only way to remove shame is to allow the violator to face the anger of the violated, who can face the anger of God? Who can face the just anger of God? Who can face God and say, "Uh uh-oh, 
The Old Testament gives us hints into this. It gives us clues into this. The sacrificial system showed us something about God, showed us something about how guilt can be removed. But only when Jesus arrives do we see the picture in full focus. Now we're not just a few clicks into focus. Now it's all the way crystal clear. And the writer of the letter to the Hebrews says it this way in Hebrews 9. He says, but Christ has appeared. Here it is. We see it now. It's before our very eyes. Christ has appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come. We're here now. It's come. It's happened in the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands. That is not of this creation. He entered the most holy place once for all time. The writer of the Hebrews is echoing Leviticus 16 and he's saying it's all come to its fulfillment in Jesus. Not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his very own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a young cow, sprinkling those who are defiled, can sanctify for the purification of flesh, if they, if they were effective, how much You could sum up the entire gospel of the new covenant with those three words. How much more? Jesus said, if you're you who are earthly, no wicked, know how to give good gifts, how much more? Paul said, if this is how sin abounded, then how much more will grace abound? And the writer of Hebrews says, if bulls and goats and that old sacrificial system could do something, then how much more? Will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse our consciences from dead works so that we can serve the living God? See, church, Jesus is the priest who offered himself as the sacrifice in his body, which was the temple. All three pieces of the system, priest, sacrifice, temples, Jesus says, bring it. I'm going to put an end to it, not because it's old-fashioned and outdated, but because I am greater than all of it. I am the true temple. I am the place where access to God happens, Jesus says. I am the dwelling place of God. I'm the true sacrifice because I'm the only one who can atone for sins and remove guilt from you. And I'm the true priest because I'm the one who makes all of this so. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus saving us from the wrath of God. The high priest in Leviticus 16, they put bells on his, the edges of his robe because they, they didn't know. He's kind of going in there on our behalf. And what if the anger of God was greater than the mercy of God on that day? And we stop hearing the bells ring. We better pull him out. He's dead. Jesus is the high priest who goes before us and says, I'll, I'll take it all on myself. God's judgment of sin, God's judgment of evil, God's judgment of all that is sick and broken and wrong and hurting in our world, God's judgment of it fell upon Christ. Paul says in Romans, God judged sin in the body of Christ Jesus. Jesus said, I'll take it. Take it all. So what does that mean for us? Well, it means a lot, doesn't it? It means we can be saved from the wrath to come. Paul says there's an anger that's coming for the end. But you can avoid that. That doesn't have to be the end of your story. We can avoid that now because of Jesus. We can be saved from the wrath to come. But there's two things I really want us to see this morning. The first is this. 
Jesus reveals the love of God. The love of God. So the pagan early temples, oh, the gods are angry. The Israelite temple, wait a minute, I don't think God is an angry God because look, he's merciful, look, there's a way. And then when you see Jesus on the cross, you say, it's not just that God is not an angry God, it's that God is love. See, the most famous scripture quoted in our Gospels does not say, John 3, 16, for God was so angry that he needed to pour out his wrath on someone and Jesus happened to be nearby. That's how some of us act, isn't it? God's just <laughs> seething with anger. <laughs> He's like the emperor in Return of the Jedi. <laughs> Just got to get somebody. There's your token Star Wars shout out for the... This is, after all, Star Wars week. No, no, no. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world. And it's out of his love that he does get angry, but he is love. For God so loved the world that he gave. And Paul says, but God demonstrated his anger in this, that he had Jesus suffer. God demonstrated his love in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And then John says in a couple letters later, he says, and this is how we know what love is. Because we've experienced some mushy feelings. This is how we know what love is. Not that we have loved God, but that God loved us. When you look at the cross, you need to see the love of God. This is not, we don't, don't view the cross through the lens of pagan images of an angry God that had to be appeased. View the cross as the ultimate revelation of the love of God. This is how we no. Moses got a glimpse. Israel had a, had a hunch. But Jesus is how we know that God is love. The second thing I want you to see is that Jesus removes our guilt and shame. Removes it. Not just deals with it. Not just glosses over it. Not just talks to us in spite of it. Removes it. Just like that goat, it's, trying, it's just sort of a picture of it. It was meant to be a shadow, a picture of it. The goat's gone. Jesus is saying, no, the guilt was on me. He who knew no sin, the Bible says, became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. That guilt is gone. And with it, the shame. So we don't get around shame by Brene Browning ourselves into not feeling shame. I know that's not what Brene's trying to do, but understand me, Brene's not the, good, the gospel. The gospel is not we can self-talk ourselves out of shame. The gospel is that Jesus took our guilt and shame away. Away. So now we don't wordsmith our way out of this. We just say, thank you, God. Thank you, Jesus. You took it. You took it. It's gone. When you look at these phrases up here, I know that for some of you, this is so hard for it to sink in your heart. Because as a young, probably as a child, you experienced some very 
destructive anger and shame. And someone in your life, maybe a church person, maybe a parent, heaped on you unrighteous anger, unjust shame. And so you hear this and you're like, I don't know. I mean, I'd like to believe that, but I just, that's, I don't feel that. When I was a kid, there was a, a boy that was a couple years older than me on the school bus in, in Malaysia, and, and he, uh, he stole my wallet one day. Lord knows it wasn't for the money. <laughs> I was like eight years old, I think. There's nothing in there. He did it just as a prank, just a little schoolboy prank. And I came home, and I was like, ah, I think this kid took my wallet, you know. And um, after dinner, you know, we lived in this row of houses, terrace houses. They're all connected, concrete houses, you know, but then they have kind of their own garden and their own little gate. And, and uh, we heard this knocking at our gates, and he's just kind of hitting the lock against the gate, making clang, and just trying to get our attention. He came out, and here's this kid. And he's just sobbing, just sobbing. But not a good kind of sobbing, like, like you knew his dad had just beat the snot out of him. And it was so sad. And I remember seeing him, my dad was next to me, and he was like, this kid is trembling. He's like, I'm, so, I'm sorry, here, my dad, here's the wallet. My dad drove me here, and I just, uh. I thought, no, 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 you know, like that. It's okay. Like it, it disprop- you, you endured a disproportionate, unrighteous, unkind, abusive kind of anger and shame. I thought, no, no, no. And it broke my heart, not because I was a saintly kid who never did anything wrong, in fact, there was once where I put Play-Doh on the hair of the girl sitting in front of me on the school bus. I don't know why. <laughs> and it got stuck there, and it hardened on it, and then her you know, parents had to cut there. And I was so sorry about it, you know. I had to face the wronged, you know, and repent. And I, I was so sorry about this. But I didn't, I was never made to experience that kind of anger and shame as a kid. I was blessed with parents who knew how to help me believe at the core that I was beloved. Even when I did wrong and how to experience the appropriate amounts of guilt and shame and, you know. But I realized when I saw that boy that day, he didn't have that kind of, those kind of parents. He had parents that told him he was useless. And so, it's very likely that some of you are sitting here today and your biggest hurdle in this is it's really not all the intellectual arguments against God. Those are all a ruse, right? Oh, guilt, shame. And you have all of these arguments. Oh, those are religion. The religion just made up that stuff and da 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 But really deep down inside is not a person who has intellectual objections to guilt. It's a little kid who's been made to feel like crap by an adult. And I want to say to you today that Jesus is here to remove that, to change the story that you hear, to change the narrative that you believe about yourself. You are not a mistake. You are not a failure. You are the one that Christ died for. 
You are the one that God saw. And he said, I love you. And so I sent my son. You are the one that God saw. The Bible says, Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame. Why did Jesus take on the shame? Because he saw the joy of you living free of shame. He saw the joy of you living free of guilt. A year and a half ago when we were doing Alpha, this course that we do at church to help people who have questions about faith, there was a young guy who came and he had never, um, never really experienced church from the Northeast, went to church once I think on a Christmas and kept coming every week and at the end of the Alpha course we go on this retreat, talk about the Holy Spirit because you know that makes sense. <laughs> and we're having this worship time, and, and I went over to him, and I said, how are you feeling about all this? And he's like, I don't know, man. He's like, I just feel like I'm on the outside, you know, like, I'm close, but I'm still on the outside. I was like, it's okay. Thanks for being part of this and being here. I think it was the next day, another worship time, I checked in on him again, and he was just crying. I was like, bro, what happened? What's going on? And he's like, I, I, I know now I'm a child of God. Say, I, I, I know now. I just saw him a few days ago at church at the first Wednesday worship night. It's like, bro, how are you? How's your family? It's like, so good, man. It's like the Lord is teaching me. And he's just got all the innocence of, and life has been hard. He's got all kinds of challenges they're dealing with. But that day, a little retreat in Woodland Park, he said, I just knew. I am a child of God. That's what I want for you. Amen. I want you to believe this. That at the core, God isn't this pagan vision of an angry God looking to vent his wrath on someone. God is the God who for love came, gave his life. Jesus himself became the temple, the sacrifice, and the priest so that all of your guilt all of your shame could be removed. Would you bow your heads this morning?